We are continuing this morning with our study through the book of Acts. Uh, Today we'll be focusing on Acts chapter 20, verses 17 to 27. In these verses, we find Paul at the end of his third missionary journey. He's on his way back to Jerusalem. He stops at the city of Miletus and asks the elders of the Ephesian church to come and meet him there. While there, he shares a farewell address with them uh, that is really the longest message we have in the book of Acts that's from Paul that was delivered to a Christian audience. Paul purposely did not revisit Ephesus as he was ending his missionary journey, the reason being that he wanted to make better time so that he could be back in Jerusalem by the day of Pentecost. But he, asked, he had spent three years ministering in Ephesus, and it was a key city in Asia, so he made a special effort to speak to the elders of the church. Be helpful for us to remember some of the highlights of Paul's ministry in this key city. In Acts 19, when he first got to Ephesus, uh, we are told that he ran into some disciples who had been baptized into the baptism of John. Paul told them that the baptism of John was a baptism of repentance and preparation for believing in Jesus Christ who was coming after John. To some level, on some level, that seemed to be some new information for them, so they were baptized in the name of Jesus and were filled with the Holy Spirit. We also know that Paul reasoned in the synagogue in Ephesus for three months uh, before a group stood firm against them and uh, against the gospel message. And at that point, Paul led the believers to officially withdraw from the synagogue and they organized a church. They met at a lecture hall where Paul was able to speak the word of the Lord on a daily basis. Well, God was performing just extraordinary miracles through Paul. People were being healed of, of, of various diseases. People who were possessed of demons were being delivered. There were some traveling exorcists who tried to imitate Paul's ministry, and seven of them were beaten up as they were attacked by the evil spirit through the demon-possessed man. Well, all this caused just a great fear of the Lord to come upon the Jews and the Greeks all through Ephesus. One of the evidences of that was that new believers saw clearly that their involvement in divination was wrong. They brought books of magic that were very expensive, burned them in a fire as an expression of their repentance. In Acts 19, verse 20, Luke tells us that the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing there. Just a glorious work of God, but not everybody was happy about it. They were not happy because the idol that controlled the people of Ephesus was being attacked by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Demetrius, who was a silversmith along with other craftsmen, really led a massive protest against Paul. Uh, They profited greatly from the temple of Artemis, which was in Ephesus. And obviously, much of of the economy was connected with that idolatrous worship. Well, a mob gathered in the local theater. A lot of them didn't even know what they were there for, but they were all unified around their commitment to Artemis. They shouted, great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours straight. They didn't know what they were protesting, but they were united in their worship service. That's what it was. It was a worship service dedicated to this mythical goddess. Well, Paul left for Macedonia soon after this, But this helps us to see why he had such a concern for the Ephesian church. So he made a special effort to share one last message with their leadership. We started looking at this message a couple weeks ago. 
Today we'll pick up again at the beginning of the message in verse 17, and I read, I'll read through verse 27. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. So Paul begins by talking about what his ministry was like in Ephesus. Um, And it's safe to assume that these descriptions really describe Paul's ministry basically everywhere he went. He talks about the content of his teaching. It was all that was considered profitable for them, which meant it was focused on the scriptures. He spoke of repentance toward God. He spoke of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He testified of the gospel of the grace of God. He preached the kingdom of God. He declared the whole purpose of God. Those are what the things that he shared. That was his ministry. Paul also shared with them that he was on his way to Jerusalem. He said the Spirit made it clear to him that bonds and afflictions awaited him there, but he was committed to go. He knew his life would be threatened. He knew he could even be killed. But again, in verse 24, he says, I don't consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. So Paul's life of serving the Lord and sharing the gospel really was more important than the threats on his life. Really pretty amazing. As I was thinking about this, I was reminded of a song that I uh, had heard and had thought about recently. Some of you may be familiar with it. It was written um, and performed by Kansas back in 1978. Probably their biggest hit. It's called Dust in the Wind. The lyrics are quite depressing. (laughs) Let me read some of them to you. I close my eyes only for a moment, and the moment's gone. All my dreams pass before me, pass before my eyes, a curiosity. Dust in the wind. All they are is dust in the wind. Same old song. Just a drop of water in an endless sea. All we do crumbles to the ground though we refuse to see dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. It's a big hit. Does Paul's outlook on life correspond with that? No, absolutely not. But let me also mention here, the thoughts and the lyrics to that song are consistent with many things that Solomon said 
in the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm going to read several uh, verses for you from that first chapter of Ecclesiastes. Verse 2 says, Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The word vanity is emptiness, meaninglessness. I'm going to read verses 4 through 7. If you notice these verses here, this is talking about life is like a weary merry-go-round. It just keeps going on, same thing, same thing, same thing. He says, a generation goes, a generation comes, the earth remains forever. Also, the sun rises, the sun sets, hastening to its place, it rises there again. Same thing. Blowing toward the south, then turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along on its circular courses, the wind returns. The wind just keeps blowing back and forth. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. And then down to verse 14, he says, I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. I read that the writer of Dust in the Wind got his main idea from a poem that he'd read by a Native American poet. But some of the same images from that song are found in Ecclesiastes. I believe Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon really as an expression of his repentance from falling away from the Lord. He is admitting the complete emptiness of life when everything is man-focused and not God-focused. Well, that's our first main point this morning. A life focused on anything other than the Lord is ultimately a life of vanity and striving after the wind. Is it true, like the song says, that all we do crumbles to the ground, but we just refuse to see that as reality? Is it true that in spite of all the effort that we give in life, we're just striving after wind and we're never going to obtain anything? It is true if life is lived apart from Jesus Christ. The works of man do not have a lasting quality to them. On the other hand, all the things that are done in service to the Lord have eternal significance. John Piper talks about a plaque that was hanging in the kitchen of his home when, uh, when he, where he grew up. It said this, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last uses that quote in the opening chapter of his book, Don't Waste Your Life. Well, the song about Kansas, by Kansas, is talking about a wasted life. That's what it's talking about, a wasted life. The verses that we read in Ecclesiastes are talking about a wasted life. A wasted life is tragic, but it doesn't have to be that way. There are things we see in Paul's message to the Ephesian elders that help us see what a fulfilled life is. It's because he's a servant of Jesus Christ, who is his Lord and Savior, that he knows the things that he does have real substance to them. That's why he can speak as if it doesn't really matter to him. It's not that important to him whether he lives or dies. The issue is not for him how long he lives. The issue is whether Paul is serving the Lord with the life he's been given. So in our second main point, I want us to see this. 
Paul showed that a full and meaningful life is a life of serving people in the context of serving the Lord. Verses 17 to 21 are Paul's introductory remarks to the Ephesian elders. He reminds them of what his ministry was like when he was there among them. And the very fact that he begins like this, reminding them of what he had said and what he had done, makes it very possible that really the Jews in Ephesus were criticizing Paul's ministry and trying to cast doubt in the minds of the believers about what he really did and whether he taught what he taught was really true. So Paul says here, you remember what I was like when I was there. You were there. He describes his time in Ephesus as serving the Lord. He was serving in humility, he says, and that's because he was conscious that, he was conscious that apart from the Lord, he was actually nothing. He knew that he could do nothing on his own strength. He knew that he could do nothing by depending on his own wisdom. He knew that he could do nothing depending on his own good works. Apart from Christ, Paul was nothing. Therefore, Paul served the Lord with humility, trusting in him. He served the Lord with tears because he was brokenhearted over the fact that so many of his fellow Jews rejected the truth that Jesus is the Christ. Brokenhearted over the fact that the people of Ephesus were spiritually enslaved to the idolatrous worship of Artemis. He served in spite of enduring many trials as a result of the Jews plotting against him. Someone looking in from the outside might think that Paul was striving after wind because he had endured so many hardships, had so many people who were actively against him. But Paul knew better. He was fully willing to serve the people of Ephesus in spite of the difficulty, and he served them because he was a servant of the Lord. So one of the things we see from Paul that is a characteristic of a full and meaningful life is this. The Christian perseveres in serving the triune God, perseveres in serving the triune God in spite of difficult trials. Paul not only dealt with trials in Ephesus, he dealt with trials everywhere he went. 2 Corinthians 11, Paul gives that amazing description of all the things he endured in serving the Lord as he was serving these people. I'm going to go ahead and read 2 Corinthians 11, 23 to 33 to you. He says, are they servants of Christ? He's talking about teachers, who, uh, false teachers. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so in far more labors and far more imprisonments beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, Dangers from false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there's a daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. In Damascus, the ethnarch under Eretos, the king, was guarding the city of Damascus. 
in order to seize me. And I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and so escaped his hands. I mean, lots of people would see a list like this. It just kind of seems to go on and on, the intensity of his suffering and his struggles. And just kind of think, Paul, you must be doing something wrong. You must be doing something wrong. I mean, maybe you should just give up serving the Lord and the way you're doing that. Something's not right here. But, of course, that wasn't an option for him. He's not trying to make it seem like he's some sort of superhuman person. Instead, he says he knows he's weak. He says, I'm boasting about my weakness. And actually, in the next, very next chapter, he says, by God's grace, when I'm weak, that's when I'm strong. Again, in Christ. So serving the Lord does not mean trying to fit in so people will look kindly on you. It doesn't mean going along with the crowd. As a servant of Christ... We know there is nothing more important in life than loving and serving Him. Nothing's more important. Sometimes that means there's going to be suffering. But even in times of suffering, God blesses us with the help we need, the strength we need, the wisdom we need. Paul knew that if he would simply back off on some of the things he was teaching, then he wouldn't offend so many people. But that was not an option. Look again at verse 20 to 23. He says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you from publicly, from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God, faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. So Paul would not shrink back from declaring all that was profitable to the people. That means he stood firm on teaching the doctrines of the apostles. He stood firm on teaching the scriptures. And that included, as he says, calling people to repent. He knew that was something profitable for people, for a person to see their sin before God and turn from it. We generally don't like it when somebody points out our sin, but, if, but, but it's something that is truly profitable for us. Repentance is toward God because he's the one that we sin against. It's the law of God that defines what is right and wrong. He's the sovereign creator. We don't have the option of changing the Ten Commandments so that our way of life is not threatened. So repentance towards God is important. But in addition to repentance, Paul testified also to them for the need of faith in Jesus Christ. Faith must always have an object. The object of our faith is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what our faith rests in. That's who our faith rests in. This, of course, is necessary for salvation. There's salvation in no other name but Jesus Christ. But it's also necessary for those who have been Christians for a while. When we turn from our sins in repentance, we're also turning toward Christ in faith at the same time. We renew our commitment to follow him as Lord. Repentance toward God, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ were important parts of Paul's own life, parts of his ministry. That's a life of real substance. It's a life serving the Lord and serving other people. Well, then Paul tells the Ephesian elders that he's being compelled now by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. One thing I think is helpful to note here is that Paul's life is being lived in submission and dependence on God the Father God the Son, God the Spirit, because he speaks of repentance towards God, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, 
and he talks about being compelled, led by the Holy Spirit. We know it takes the Holy Trinity to save anyone from sin. It takes the Holy Trinity to enable us to persevere in our faith. This is not Paul following the culture. This is not Paul doing what he seemed thought was right in his own mind. This is Paul living a life of real substance as he served people in the context of serving the Lord. He'd already endured many difficult, life-threatening trials. He knew there was more to come, but he persevered. He continued. He pressed on in faithful service, trusting the strength of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So a life of perseverance and faith is part of a full and meaningful life. Also, a meaningful life is made possible through the gospel of the grace of God. It's made possible through the grace of God. Verse 24, which we've mentioned before, look at it again. It says, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. So the only hope that we have for escaping a life of vanity, striving after wind, is the gospel of the grace of God. That's our hope. Paul testified solemnly because this is an eternal, holy, God-ordained, God-accomplished truth. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He came to save Jewish people who had refused to believe that Jesus was the promised Messiah, but he would save them. He came to save Gentiles who had given themselves over to idolatrous worship instead of serving the one true God. A.W. Pink gives a definition of grace. He says, divine grace is the sovereign saving favor of God. It's the sovereign saving favor of God exercised in the bestowment of blessings upon those who have no merit in them and for which no compensation is demanded from them. We're not paying for it. We're not doing anything to earn it. And not only have we done nothing to deserve God's sovereign and saving grace, we've actually done the opposite. We do deserve God's condemnation. We deserve eternal destruction. We actually deserve hell. It is a grace that we receive that is completely undeserved. In fact, it's a grace that we don't even seek for. We aren't even looking for it. No one seeks after God on their own. Nobody does. But the gospel of the grace of God makes it clear that God himself takes the initiative to be merciful to sinful people who deserve condemnation. He doesn't look to see if there's anybody who actually deserves his grace because nobody does. He doesn't look to see who might have the most potential in life before he's gracious to them. He doesn't look to see who's more naughty or who's more nice and kind of goes on that way. God's grace is poured out on people who all equally deserve eternal condemnation. It's poured out on people whose life is full of vanity and striving after wind. Eternal life is a gift. And it's a gift that only the triune God is able to give. It's a gift that the triune God loves to give to guilty sinners. It is God who saves us. It is God who calls us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. And that grace is given to us in Christ Jesus 
It's a grace that was given to us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And it's a grace that is a reigning grace. In our natural state, it's sin that reigns in our life. We're described in the Bible as slaves of sin. Sin is our master. And because of sin, we are spiritually dead. Because of sin, we naturally walk according to the course of this world. We are described in the Bible as being sons of disobedience. Because of sins, we live in the lust of the flesh. We indulge the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We're by nature children of wrath. All of that is true because sin is the reigning influence in our life. But God in his grace overcomes our sin. He shows his love toward us in Christ. Christ endured the wrath that we sinners deserve when he died on the cross. Christ was raised from the dead to fully accomplish salvation by grace to all who would believe. And the Holy Spirit applies that saving, reigning grace to sinners. He shows us our sin. He convicts us of the judgment that we deserve. He opens our eyes to see what Christ has accomplished for us. He enables us to actually repent from our sin and believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And so in that sense, grace begins to reign in our life, to be what is in charge. The Lord inclines our heart to what is righteous. Matter of fact, instead of being slaves of sin, we are transitioned or transformed into slaves of righteousness. It is a, it, grace reigns in our life, and that's one of the ways that it reigns. Well, it's the gospel of the grace of God that enables us to live a life of real substance, not a life of vanity and just chasing after wind. Next, we see from Paul's example that a meaningful life is a life that is informed and guided by the scriptures. Look at verse 25 to 27. It says, Now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. So Paul confirms to them, as they, as they know because they were there, that he preached the kingdom of God to them. He clearly preached to them that God is the sovereign creator. <laughs> clearly preached to them that they were accountable to him for how they lived their life. Preached to them that he was sovereign over all things. He's the king. And as the king, he's the one who has revealed what is right and wrong. His law reigns supreme over all the laws of men. So to proclaim the kingdom in one sense includes proclaiming the law of God. Well, as the king, he's the one who has revealed what is true. And since by nature our hearts are darkened by sin, unless God reveals the truth, we will never know the truth. But God in his mercy and in his kindness has revealed truth to us. Paul said in verse 27 that he did not shrink back from declaring the whole purpose of God. He mentions, by the way, there he says, he says, I'm not guilty of anyone's blood because I've testified to you everything that I was supposed to testify. In other words, if you don't believe it, it's on your head, not mine. Because he shared everything, all the revelation God had, made, had given to him, he reveals, he gives to them. He made the scriptures clear to them. So if we're going to live a life that is not vanity, that is not striving after wind, 
then we need to know what is right and wrong. We need to know what is true and what is false. We need to know the whole purpose of God. We need to know the scriptures. The scriptures are really, there's so many things when we think about the scriptures here, but the, the scriptures are the only certain rule for us on what we are to believe. They are the, they're the ones that, that the scriptures inform us how we're to live. Anything less than that, again, is just striving after wind. The scriptures are sufficient. They are enough. They tell us what we need for salvation. They tell us what we need to be a faithful servant of God in every area of life. Now, Paul proclaimed the kingdom. He proclaimed the whole purpose of God so that the church in Ephesus would know what they were to believe and how they were to live. The 45th question in the Baptist Catechism reminds us of how important that is. It says this, what is the duty, what is the duty that God requires of man? The duty which God requires of man is obedience to his revealed will. That's our duty before God. Every person who has ever lived on the face of the earth has been born with that duty to obey God's revealed will. There are no exceptions. We are all born into God's kingdom of creation. So our creator's revealed will is our standard. And we all know that we have just failed miserably to fulfill that duty. But the gospel of the grace of God points us to faith in Jesus Christ. And when we trust Christ as our Savior, we are now, we're in the kingdom of God, but more specifically, we're actually in the kingdom of Christ. We are forgiven, made righteous in Christ, and the duty to obey God's revealed will continues as a great privilege for us. I mean, the scriptures are such a treasure when you think about it. So many different ways the scriptures are, are described in the Bible. They're described as the word of God. They're described as his laws, his testimonies, his statutes, his ordinances. In Psalm, um, I think it's Psalm 19, where it says, it's his law that restores our soul. It's his law that restores our soul. It's his testimonies that make the wise that, that makes simple people wise. It's his testimonies that rejoice the heart. They bring rejoicing to the heart. We are told that his, that his commands are pure. They actually enlighten the eyes. It says they're more desirable than gold, and they're sweeter than the drippings of the honeycomb. That's all talking about the scriptures. If we're going to live a full and meaningful life, we have to be committed to the whole purpose of God. We have to give great attention to those scriptures. If not, we will find ourselves striving after the wind. Finally, we see that a meaningful life is one that is given to fully serving the purposes of God in his kingdom, though circumstances may prove to be dangerous. As we just noted, it is the revelation of God in the scriptures that reveal to us the whole purpose of God. They show us how to live a life of real substance, a life that is pleasing to him, that is meaningful for us. Well, Paul's made it clear that his whole ministry to the people of Ephesus was focused on making these truths clear to them. His life was an example of one who was living that way and also preaching it to others. 
to the life and ministry that he had was so important, so fulfilling to Paul, that he said he was fully willing to die serving the Lord, if that's what, if that's what, what, what it meant, if that's what took place. Again, in verse 24, he said, He did not count his life of any account as dear to himself. His goal was not to live as long as he could. His goal was to serve people in the context of serving the Lord. God had given him a ministry of taking the gospel of the grace of God to the Jews first and then to the Gentile world. He knew that would position him against many people who lived for their idols. He knew that when he challenged their idolatry with the gospel, they would often turn violent in order to keep living their life of futility and chasing after wind. He knew the circumstances of his life could well become dangerous. They already had, and there was more to come. But a life of glorifying and pleasing the Lord through Christ was worth it. A life of living and explaining the gospel of the grace of God was worth it to Paul, and it's worth it to us. So because of that, Paul knew his life was not just dust in the wind. He knew that he was a servant of the triune God. He knew there was nothing better, nothing more meaningful or fulfilling than that. Lord, we want to thank you for your word. We thank you for the example to us of the Apostle Paul. There is so much in the world that really is just vanity, meaninglessness, just chasing after the wind. No real substance to it. They think there's substance to it, but there's no real substance to it. Lord, thank you for saving us from that, for showing us that vanity in our own hearts and actually showing us that Christ is our only hope. Thank you for changing us. Thank you for your word, that it reveals Christ to us. It reveals to us what is true so we can be protected from holding on to things that are false. It shows us what is right, what is honoring to you. We want to please you more than anything else. Thank you for changing our hearts, making us slaves of righteousness and no longer slaves of sin. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you so much for the the fullness for the, 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 a life that has meaning and, and real purpose. And it's all because of your grace and mercy in Christ. If you're one who's never put your faith in Christ, a prayer like this will be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I'm a sinner. I realize that I'm pursuing things that really are not what God wants me to pursue. It's the wrong things. But I thank you that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners like me. So I want to receive Christ as my Savior. I want to commit my life to Him as the very Lord of my life. If you want to talk in more detail about the commitment, you can make a note on the tear-off, or you can reach out to us through the website if you're, walk if you're watching online. It is in the name of